0: Thanks for tuning in and watching this week's message. We don't want anybody to feel obligated to give just because they watch the message, but if you'd like to, we'd be most appreciative. We're a rather small group here in Colorado, but we seem to have a rather large online audience, and we'd love to, for you uh, to be a part of supporting it if, if you want to. You can do that by going to our website and pressing on the donate button. Thanks for watching. This is Ephesians chapter 5, verse 13. When anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. That's good news. And I think uh, Christ will shine on you this morning. I'm really excited to have Mike Owens here. I think in the bulletin uh, it says interviewing a legend. That's because we were late in getting the title in, so Michael put legend in there. But Mike, Mike really is kind of a legend. I think the title that we put in the, the E-News was, was God taking a break, right? But Mike uh, has an amazing story, and I want you to kind of hear it this morning. But uh, Mike is something of a legend. Mike is from Dallas you can tell by his cool outrageous western shirt. And uh, Mike uh, kind of leads a group that they even call the Mini Sanctuary Dallas uh, that's been meeting once a month and wants to meet once a week, and they tap into our messages here. Some of you know Mike because um, a couple years ago, Mike said, hey, Pete or Peter, could we have a conference? And I said, I guess so, if you want to do it, and so Mike was the energy behind the conference that we had last summer that a lot of you were involved in. Uh, Mike also, um, Mike's a businessman. He, can I mention this, this website? So Mike, Mike has even made a website called What's a BVB, Bible Versus Banned by Bible Believing Believers, which is based on one of our Downside Up. Uh, videos, and Mike just went ahead and made a whole website with all kinds of fascinating stuff on it, so you can check that out. But uh, I want to introduce Mike to you, or he just did, Well, Mike, you come up here, so I get something was missing in the introduction because you didn't see him. But this is Mike, and uh, uh, Mike can tell you, you can tell everybody a little bit about yourself, and then I want Mike to tell you his story, and we'll ask a couple questions and continue on with uh, our worship, all right? so
1: i set my timer up here because I don't want to
0: Okay. And you've got the, you have the microphone too, right? Mike? Do, do I need a mic? Oh, yeah. Kathleen hid it from us. Oh. Gee, that's so. There you go. You take right. that. So we, we can sit down if you want. And... Right.
1: Um,
0: so well, t- just tell us. Yeah. Anything I miss, like you're married to somebody, you have offspring,
1: that sort of thing. Okay. Well, yeah, first of all, um, I thought about it last night in the title of the of the thing up there about me being a legend. I, I thought, well, you know that 's Bonnie and Clyde were legends, yeah, so I guess it, yeah
0: hitler 's a legend, yeah, hitler,
1: yeah yeah, so yeah we' we fit right in there, so um, before I get started, I, I wanted to ask do do they have cowboy churches in Colorado? okay i, I wasn 't too sure in in Texas, they passed a law uh, last year that there has to be at least five cowboy churches in every county by 2018, <laughs> and we're well on our way. I think we've already accomplished that in our county. I know that we have at least five, and one of them is pretty close to our home, and we live about 30 miles north of Dallas, kind of between Dallas and the Red River, which is where I think Oklahoma's yeah Oklahoma's up there, and. Um, this cowboy church near us, I go over there every once in a while, and if you don't wear cowboy boots and a cowboy hat, I don't even think, oh, they wouldn't let Peter in. Forget it. He'd never make it in. And, and cowboy churches are, are pretty cool. They, they are genuinely cowboys, and these are, at least there's some fake ones, but they're, most of them are real cowboys. God will forgive them. Yeah, yeah. And, and these guys… None of their churches have carpet, and they all meet in barns. And there's thousands of these churches all over, and they, they even have them in Russia now. But that's the reason they have concrete floors is because the guys come to church on Sunday morning after they've been cleaning stalls and doing all sorts of stuff like that, and they don't want poop on the carpet, so they just come as they are. And it's quite interesting to go and to see which guys you can tell who's been out working all morning long. Well, uh, I came to know one of the guys at the Cowboy Church uh, near us, his name is Duane, really neat guy. Well, he and a group of his buddies, once a month, they hop on their horses and they, on Saturday, they'll take a ride and go up to the Red River. And there's a restaurant just across the Red River in Oklahoma that they like to go to and have their, their weekly uh, chicken fried steak and beer. Well. Dwayne called me the other day, and and last Saturday, none of the guys showed up, and so he drove up, rode up uh, on his beautiful Palomino he's got. He rode up there, and there's a place in the river where it's shallow enough where you can easily go across with your horse, and he got to the restaurant and tied his horse up to the hitching post outside, and went in and had a, um, uh, you know, a nice lunch and a beer, and when he came out, his horse was gone. And so, pretty upset, he went back inside and he yelled, somebody has stolen my horse. And the restaurant was noisy and and nobody heard him, so he reached down and pulled out his sidearm, pointed it straight up the ceiling, and bam, and the place got totally quiet. And he yelled at everybody and said, somebody has stolen my horse and I want it tied up out in front of this restaurant in 10 minutes. And if it's not, I'm going to do exactly what they do in Texas when someone steals your horse." So he goes and gets a beer and sits down at the bar and has another beer. Well, 10 minutes goes by, and he goes out, and there's this beautiful palomino tied up to the hitching post. So he hops on the horse, and he's getting ready to leave. And the bartender comes out, and he says, what is it you do in Texas when somebody steals your horse? And Dwayne says, oh, well, we walk.
0: (laughs) So bad. (laughs) Okay, so tell us about
1: Susan and your kids. No, I've got more jokes. Okay. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I'm I'm married to a a Cherokee Indian and uh, her name is Susan and we have five children. 15 years ago, we bought 20 acres out in the country. In fact, the, the old Victorian farmhouse that's on this property was built by, um, um, my mind just went blank, one of the, the men that fought at the Alamo, uh, his grandson built this house. And four of our children were grown and gone so we lived there with, with our youngest son and 11 years and two months ago, at 10 o'clock at night, we were getting ready to go to bed. And we had had a rainstorm that came through about 9:30, and it looked like you know, the storm was over. And so I proceeded to, to get ready for bed. and I had on my jeans, I'd taken off my socks and shoes, and I took off my shirt, and the phone rang and Susan answered the phone. And somebody said, one of her friends, Duana, said there's a tornado coming right at your house. The very instant she said that, the house went dark and the phone went dead. And Susan yelled at me. She said, there's a tornado coming. Well, in our home that night, we had our grandson who's two and a half years old, Parker, in fact he comes here with me whenever I get a chance to bring him he's thirteen now, and our son Colson, who's fourteen, and our nephew who was staying with us that night he is fourteen, Robert so there were five of us, and immediately I went and grabbed Parker and took him to the center of the house where the washer and dryer room was and laid him on the floor in front of the washer and dryer and laid on top of him. And then Susan took the two boys and went underneath the staircase. Robert was up against the wall. Susan was in the middle. And then Coulson was on the, the edge of the staircase facing the hallway. About the moment we got into position, we started hearing the freight train coming to the front of our house, and we could hear trees breaking, and then suddenly it seemed like every window in the house broke instantly, and I could hear them all. In fact, I remember hearing the front door, I'm pretty sure it was the front door, fly by my head, going right past the doorway into the washer and dryer room. the big front door, and the whole house felt like it levitated, and I could feel the movement of the floor turning, and everything was just noisy and and breaking, And, and I remember for some bizarre reason praying, and I don't pray out loud very often, but I prayed, Lord, not tonight, not tonight, not tonight. And I think I said that over and over 10 times. And then suddenly, as everything was just completely crumbled and crushed all around me, I realized that I was alive. And Parker was crying, laying underneath me. And what had happened was the upstairs had fallen and crushed the washer and dryer to where they were about 16 to 18 inches tall. And Parker and I were inside of this little triangle about that big. And I tried to crawl out backwards, and as I crawled out, all I could feel were nails everywhere. And then I heard Susan yelling, are you okay? And I yelled back because she was about 20 feet away from me and lots of debris between us. And I said, yes, I'm okay, and she was pinned underneath the house with the staircase on top of her legs, but she wasn't injured, but she couldn't move. Well, as soon as I crawled out, I immediately reached in and pulled Parker out, and he was crying of course, and it was so dark, I just didn't know what to do, where to go. And then within seconds, the storm was gone and a full moon came out and I could see every board and every nail all around me. So I was able to make my way to the pickup truck, which wasn't parked maybe 100, it was 100 feet from where I parked it earlier. And I put Parker inside and I went back to look for for Susan and Colson and Robert. As I was walking back, all of a sudden Robert walks up to me and he had been blown out of the house. On that side of the house, it blew away. And he was sucked outside and landed on his feet and didn't have a scratch. And then I said, Where's Colson? And he said, I don't know. And so we checked on Susan and she said, Don't worry, I'm fine. So we looked everywhere. We went all around that house looking for Colson. We were looking underneath everything, you know, just everywhere. And we could not find him anywhere. And I remember getting very, very frustrated with myself because I felt like my adrenaline should have me strong enough. You know, you hear those stories of women lifting cars to get their baby out from underneath them or something, and I go, why can't I lift this lumber and these walls and stuff and find my son? And this went on for about 10 minutes, and then I started to see red lights about a half a mile away at my neighbor's property. We were pretty far away from each other and I saw fire trucks and firemen, but there was a big creek between us and lots of, we lost 2,000 trees, so it was total devastation between us and their neighbors. And so I went to get my gun out of my truck, of course, we're in Texas, we all carry guns in our trucks, and I was going to shoot it in the air to try to get someone's attention. And about that time, one of my neighbors, who was a Plano fireman, pulled in the driveway and he saw the devastation that was there. And, immediately called on his radio for backup. Within a few minutes, a state trooper pulled in, and then several deputies pulled in and a fire truck. And they realized that we had a, a gas leak and that they didn't want anybody near the house, which was, I would say, pretty well devastated. I mean, it was just a mess. and. Um, They kept me and Susan and Parker and Robert up against the fence about a hundred yards away from the house, and the state trooper stayed with us, and then gradually family and, and relatives, friends, started showing up. And this hit about 10.15, and so I would say it was about 11.15 or 11.30. We probably had 20 or 30 family members there. And this whole time there were probably fifteen men digging through the debris trying to find Coulson. And they had they had gotten Susan out, of course. And so it was probably one o'clock in the morning. And I remember very distinctly because the moon was so bright I could see them. And two deputies and two state troopers and a couple of firemen. Together walked toward me and Susan, and they walked up to us and said, "Uh, We found, we found your son, and he's not alive. So I remember looking at the men straight in the eyes, and I said, thank you for what you've been doing here this evening, but I want each one of you to know that it's a temporary separation. Well, I've got to tell you that God gave Susan and I both a piece—well, we say passes all understanding. I would say it was a piece that blows my mind. And we um, hugged each other and cried. And then they—they they told us that um, they needed to wait for the coroner to come before they could move his body. And by this time, there were probably 15 pickup trucks in our driveway of volunteers, firemen and policemen who had been there. And as we waited for about two hours for the coroner, not one single man left. Every truck stayed in the driveway. And after the coroner got there, I talked with him. And he said, well, I want you to know that Coulson didn't suffer. He was hit in the back by a large beam. And it knocked the breath out of him instantly. It's interesting, I I tapped on Peter's shoulder just a minute ago when we were singing a song about God gives us every breath. And that's true. He gives us every heartbeat we have, and he knows exactly how many we have. And it's not by accident or chance. It's all by his perfect plan. Well, after they put Colson's body into the funeral director's car, the funeral director proceeded to pull out of the driveway, and every single pickup truck behind us followed us out all the way to Van Alsteen, which was about five miles away, about 5 o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, was, I was amazed at the, at the heart of the people who were there uh, through this time. Mike, um,
0: what you described is so hard for uh our hearts and minds to come to terms with, because I think we've all experienced loss in different forms and different ways. And people in this room have lost children and parents and friends. And, And it's usually easier to blame it on human free will or sin or whatever. But in a situation where a whirling wind drops out of the sky, and your nephew, Robert, right? Nephew gets sucked out and he's unscathed, and your, your son is instantly killed. Well, it obviously raises all sorts of questions about God, who he is, what he's doing. And, and so this was about 11 years ago now. So tell us how this has affected you, changed your, your view of
1: God. Thank you. Um... Yeah, you know, I mentioned that we lost about 2,000 trees and the house was destroyed in our barn and shop and everything. And it took us months to clean it up. And about two months after, well, maybe three months after, we had a big tree planting out there. Uh, 300 of our friends came out and brought trees and they planted around this one four-acre section where the house used to be. And since then, we've made that into a four-acre memorial garden. And I remember very, very distinctly driving out, we, were, we had rented a house about three miles away, and I would drive out to the property every morning uh, to check on things and do some work and then go run my business and come back and do some more work in the afternoon and the evening. And I was driving along, and I turned down our road, and it hit me that I had believed all my life that God was sovereign, which was lip service in a way, because we hear that in church, and we believe it, and we say, yeah, sure. And then I started thinking more deeply about what does God's omnipotence mean? He's all-powerful. And then it occurred to me that He's omniscient, and He knows everything that's happening. In putting those together logically, meant that God must have been on a break. May the 9th, 2006, because He sure missed this one. And then, of course, I realized that's silly. He wasn't on break. But as I started putting two and two together, it occurred to me that God killed my son. Well, that sounded awfully harsh. Even in my own mind, I thought, no, God God didn't kill my son, and I thought, yeah, He did. (laughs) Boy, that was hard to to swallow. And I remember two days later talking to a good friend, and I said, you know what? I realized that God killed Coulson. In fact, I realized He's going to kill me and He's going to kill you. Well, we don't talk like that, we're good Christians, but it's true. As I started digesting deep in my soul and in my mind this idea that God is sovereign over everything, it started changing the way that I was looking at lots of things in my theology and in my understanding of God. And and the the whole idea of hell. You know, if God is sovereign and He's the one that's giving us the eyes to see and the gift of repentance and the gift of faith, that means He's not giving it to somebody else, which is actually quite biblical. But that also means that He's sovereignly sending people to hell. Well, That didn't seem to to fit with a loving God at all. So I started really digging and researching and reading everything I could about what does the Bible really say about hell. And I learned that a lot of the things that I had been taught all my life were were quite wrong. In fact, one of the things I thought was quite interesting was actually the word hell is a 12th century German word which means a place of protection. You know, you think of a helmet, same word, based on hell, a place of protection. Uh, A person that plants potatoes is a hellier. They take the eye of the potato and they put it in a place of protection underneath the ground. But over time, just like the word gay has changed in our lifetime, the word hell has changed its meaning in in, in the last eight centuries. Well, you know, Peter has a great video, I don't know if you all all watched it, about the meaning of the word hell. And it's a real short video, it's excellent, but he goes through the meanings of Gehenna and Sheol and Hades and how all that fits together and how we have our, our understanding incorrect. Well, I started reading and understanding these things and it started fitting that God's mercy is relentless. His love is for all. And once I got this hell idea straightened out, all of a sudden, God's sovereignty in all things and His mercy for all started fitting together like a glove. And boy, what a difference that made in my perspective. And then I started struggling with free will. And how does my free will fit in with God's perfect will? And I struggled with that for a while and I've talked to Peter about it a little bit too. And, and I realized that first of all, the Bible doesn't say anything about free will. <laughs> That's our idea. But one of the things I will say about free will is that on this planet today, Billions and billions of decisions are going to be made, and all of them are free-will decisions. But tomorrow, we can look look back at today with full assurance that 100% of all the decisions made today and all the events that take place today are perfectly and harmoniously in God's will. Well, that's you know, it's funny. We acknowledge that Jesus is 100% God, and we acknowledge that Jesus is 100% man. How does that work? Well, I don't know. Well, I believe that free will and God's perfect will are the same thing. It's hard for us to comprehend it sometimes. I think Peter gave me a great analogy recently. It's kind of like a child sitting in your lap in a parking lot and you're with, holding onto the steering wheel, you're letting your child hold onto the steering wheel but you've really got it down here. Well, your child, your three-year-old, really thinks that he's driving the car across the parking lot, but he's not. You're, you're driving. And I think that that's the same thing that's going on with us is that we, we're like that child and we think that we've got a hold of the steering wheel. But essentially and really, God does. And there's a story I wanted to share with you that helps to, to see this. I think in your mind, if we acknowledge that God planned each one of our lives, He planned our birth, He planned our death, He planned our existence here on this planet, and He's also got plans for us after resurrection. But this story helps to show how God's sovereign hand digs deep into the intricate and the small stuff. It's a story about Jonathan and Scott. Jonathan was a young man living in London 500 years ago, and there was a plague that was rushing through London it was about their fourth one in about a 20-year period, and he wasn't gonna hang around. So he headed west, and he was about 50 miles from London, and he came to a fork in the road. And for one reason or another, he turned left, went down that road, walked for a couple more hours, and it was getting close to dark, and he could see a storm brewing up, and it looked like it was gonna be raining anytime soon and he saw a farmhouse off in the distance. So he went and knocked on the farmer's front door and he asked him if he could stay in his shed out back. And the farmer said, sure, that's fine. Well, early the next morning, the farmer goes out to check on Jonathan. And then he asked him, he says, would you stay and help me with my harvest that's coming up? Uh, I'm shorthanded and I could use your help. So Jonathan says, sure. So he stays, and after a couple of weeks, they get word that a little dairy farm close by had been attacked late in the night by a group of marauders, and they killed the young dairyman, and they left his widow for dead. And Jonathan and this farmer and the farmer's wife they proceeded to go and check on this young widow every couple of days and help her. And after a couple of months, Jonathan and this widow became friends and they began a courtship, and Jonathan ended up marrying this widow. Well, she was pregnant with a a baby from the Marauders, but she proceeded to, to carry the baby and the child was born and they had other children. And then, nine generations later, Scott's born. He's one of the descendants of the young widow. And Scott's living in England, and he's hearing about all these things going on over in the colonies, and he decides to hop on one of those ships and come over, and as soon as he gets to the colonies, the British army puts him into into battle and he's finds himself riding on a horse, and as he's riding along, heading toward this battle, there's a, a colonial sharpshooter in a tree, and he's pointing the, the gun right at Scott's head, and he pulls the trigger. And the very instant he pulls the trigger, a snake spooks Scott's horse, it rears up, throws him off, and the horse loses its balance and falls and breaks. Scott's legs. Well, Scott managed to survive the battle, and he finds himself in an infirmary, and there's a a young German nurse there that catches Scott's eyes, and after he recovers, they court, and they get married, and they have children. And then eight generations later, Peter's grandfather is born. Now my question for you to think about is, if that snake hadn't scared that horse, where would Peter be? And if those marauders hadn't killed that dairyman and raped his wife, where would Peter be? And if Scott or Jonathan had made a right-hand turn instead of a left-hand turn, when he was 50 miles west of London, we wouldn't have Peter. And so I think that helps us to see that a little bit, that the little things that happen all around us every day have a huge effect yeah. on who's born and who's not. So I should thank God for the snake that scared Absolutely. Snake. yeah Absolutely. Yeah,
0: so, Mike, for. For you, you went through this experience, and the experience brought you to this incredible realization that God is absolutely good, and he's writing an absolutely good story, and every day of our life is like a page in that book, and you've come to have faith in the author of the story, and that, including that day, uh, 11 years ago, God was writing his story. So you've suffered, uh, you, I keep thinking of the story of Job because your story is so much like Job's story. Job experiences this incredible loss. His friends come sit with him for seven days in, in silence, and then they begin counseling him for like 30-some chapters until at the end of the book, God does something amazing with Job, and it seems like God's done something amazing with you. But it came through a process of grief that I imagine is just beautiful. Uh, Brutal, Brutal. and you still feel the grief. I mean, in other words, you still have the wound of Coulson's loss that stays with you. So last night you said something about processing the grief and how you talk to other people about grief, and you mentioned something about a a a woman to to whom you said something like you just said to us a few minutes ago and her response. So can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, um, about two years after Coulson died, there was a 15-year-old girl killed in Van Alsteen in a uh, rollover accident of a van. It was a church van, actually. And uh, they were going to camp, and none of the children were scratched, but her daughter died. And she was really, 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 the mother was really struggling with, with this situation. And the youth pastor at the Baptist church there in town called me one day, and he said, would you mind meeting with Amber and talking to her about Coulson and about your situation, I said, sure. So she and I had lunch, and I told her a little bit about, well, we talked for about 30 minutes about the kids mostly, and then I started to tell her how I had, I had come to see that God is sovereign and perfectly in control of all these things. And she looked at me and she said, so you're telling me that God killed my daughter? And that was a hard answer, just to give her And I said, yeah, I am. Well, she was noticeably upset and I thought she was maybe gonna get up and leave. And we talked a little bit more and then about 10 or 15 minutes later, she looked at me and she goes, I would rather know that God was in control and took my daughter in His perfect timing and knows exactly what He's doing than to go the rest of my life and think that she died in some sort of fluky accident. I said, yeah, that's right. It's not for your comfort, but it's the truth. And that truth is, is an amazing place to relax and when we don't you know we have a tendency as christians in our society to think that this whole life is about getting it perfect and getting it right and getting it perfecting ourselves <laughs> and and to a degree maybe even coming to a point of trusting in Jesus Christ as our personal savior and if we don't then we're messed up and one of the things that happened during this time was that I heard. A, well, my favorite theologian besides Peter is Fred Rogers, and I'm sure y'all know who Fred Rogers is. And Mr. Rogers, Mr. Neighborhood. Rogers' neighborhood, yes. And he he had he died about 11 or 12 years ago, and when he passed away, his wife found a note a handwritten note in his billfold. And that note said, I've never met anyone I couldn't love if I heard their story. And I thought, well, gee, if Mr. Rogers could love anybody, then certainly the God who wrote our stories (laughs) could love us. And some stories really suck. I mean, some are really, really bad. Just think about Adolf Hitler. Well, did God write his story? Yeah. In fact, is anybody here less than 46 years old? Yeah, I think most of us here. Not me, but, or born after 1946, I should say. If you were born after 1946, I would venture to say that you wouldn't be here if it hadn't been for Adolf Hitler. Wow. That's a (laughs) That's a heck of a snake to think yeah. Yeah. So, I'm just saying that, that when we start to see that God is doing things in all sorts of weird and miraculous and yeah. wonderful ways that sometimes look really ugly, yeah. but when we can get to a point where we can relax and trust in that work of His hand, it's, it's an amazing thing. But when I, when I do deal with parents who have lost a child, and I have two good friends who lost – one lost a 15-year-old daughter three weeks ago, and one lost a 22-year-old son two months ago. I'll be honest with you, I don't know what to say. And I think that from the book of Job, the wisdom we can gain there is the seven men who came and counseled him, gave him really crappy advice. And God even told him, hey, this is – this is – this is BS, you know. and and reprimanded them. But then they, they sat for seven days and didn't say a thing. And I think in the place of grief, when someone loses particularly a child or a close loved one, just being there is number one. Saying something isn't important at all. Just being there, letting someone know you love them, let them know you're there. And the theology can come later. And I never do. It's it's weird. I have had at least twelve or thirteen families who have lost children who are close friends since Coulson's death. And I never once would ever come to any of them and tell them, "Hey, you need to trust in God because He's sovereign." That's that's not the answer the grieving parent wants to hear. But there is a time for that. And I think a. And I think one of the beautiful things about Peter giving me this opportunity to say this today is that if we come to starting to understand God's sovereignty and His hand in all these things, including disasters and death and and sickness and cancer and car wrecks, that when they do happen, we don't have to fret and freak out. Well, and it it seems that God
0: created something beautiful in you. So, this tragedy uh, creates a a trust in you, in God's compassion over all humanity and mercy for other mercy for other people, right. and I think like what that woman said, it's, 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 a hard, it's a hard thing to hear at a certain point, but what a, what a beautiful knowledge to know yeah. that if I lose one of my children, I'm not losing it to some demon, right. I'm not losing right. it to chaos, I'm not losing that child to chance, I'm surrendering that child into the arms of the author
1: who created him in the first place. So, yeah, and that brings up something I want to say real, real quick, and then we'll wrap up is that as a Christian and growing up in the Baptist church and Bible churches for 50 years, I was under this understanding that it was about getting our theology right, and if we die as Christians or as one who has trusted Christ, we go to heaven. If we don't, then we go to hell. And so this life is sort of a test to see if we can get it right. And if we don't get it right, hopefully some missionary will help us get it right. I found out that what this whole planet and what this life is about is about God writing a story in each one of our lives. And each one of us will carry one thing to our death and to our resurrection, and that's our history and our story. And so, our stories, some of them aren't so bad. Some of them are really bad. But it takes our story for us to see and understand the contrast of God's love and His mercy. And on the day of resurrection, when we see His amazing beauty in His hands and His His plan and this tapestry all of a sudden starts to look clear and we see, oh, okay, now I see this all fits and it all works perfectly then we can go into eternity with this amazing backdrop that we could otherwise never see yeah, and understand. A, a knowledge we wouldn't have had.
0: Well, everything you shared I think is so fascinating because, uh, you, you know, there are bits and you'd struggle with put, putting words around it and whatever, and it's, everything you said to me reminds me of the book of Job. And, you know, the book of Job is this amazing Old Testament book, and scholars debate some think it may be the oldest book in the Bible and not even written by Jews, but it's this incredible story where Satan goes to God and says, look, everybody just loves you or fears you because you give them good stuff. And God says, well, what about my servant Job? And, uh, and, and he basically gives Satan permission to just mess with, with, with Job. And a terrible thing happens. A wind comes, and kills Job's children. But Job doesn't know about any of this conversation. And then you remember he's sitting on the ashes of his former life, scratching himself with potsherds, and the friends show up. And they sit for seven days, and then they talk for we don't know how long. And then God appears in a whirlwind, a tornado, God talks to Job out of the, or somehow communicates with Job out of this tornado, saying, Job, do you know how to do this? Do you know how to do this? Do you know how to create an ostrich? Do you know how to create an alligator, a behemoth, or whatever it is? And uh, after about four or five chapters or whatever, then Job says this. This is Job 42, uh, verse one. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. So God purposed the death of Job's children, even though Satan was the agent. And I don't think Satan is a willing agent, and yet God is still in control of Satan. And I think when you say that um, he, he killed Colson, I, I go, well, the fascinating thing to me is I, I don't think God can murder, because murder is taking a life that isn't yours, and yet. Everyone's life in this room belongs to God. God constantly gives you life, and at a certain point, God takes that life back to himself, the life that he has first given. And then, he, and then Job says this, "'Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know.'" So Job experiences this loss of control and then he finally surrenders control, but then he realizes that what he's surrendering control to is not something worse than he thought, it's something far too wonderful than uh, he could ever understand, something too wonderful for me. Then he says this, I had heard of you by the hearing of my ear, but now my eyes see you. And scripture says that no man has ever seen God, but somehow Job sees a voice in the tornado, which I think is so amazing about your story, Mike, because you had this encounter with God through a tornado. Job sees the light, and this is the contrast, shining in the darkness. And we all experience darkness, and we say, well, why the darkness? But the light shines in the darkness, according to to the Gospel of John. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Verse 6, therefore, I despise myself. And that word despise can is also translated reject. Like, I reject my psyche, my way of thinking. I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. The word for repent is also comfort. So it can be translated, I'm comforted in dust and ashes. And it's so amazing to remember that each of us is created of dust and ashes infused with the life of God, the breath of God, the, the life is in, in, in the breath, the spirit and uh, he's, he's, he's comforted. So he's saying, I am comforted in this knowledge that I'm the creature and you are the creator. And then verse eight, I just was reading this this morning, this blows my mind. God has Job pray for mercy for his friends that have been criticizing him for like days. Job prays for mercy for his, his friends And then in verse 10, God gives him back twice as much as he had before. You know, Scripture says God has given you his own son. Will he not give you all things with him? So God gives you Jesus. God gives you Colson. He gives you all things with him. And when you receive them, he will have also given you a new heart. And I think that new heart I think that's what the Bible calls faith or love. It's faith in God's mercy, and, and I think it's a good free will. So God is creating Mike Owens in his image, and it turns out by the end of Job, you realize that Job is not the most despised man in the world by God, but Job is the most honored man in the world by God. Job is God's champion because Job loves God in freedom like, like Jesus. Yeah. So, through this suffering, God creates faith and mercy and somehow makes all things new and gives us the ability to appreciate it. And
1: it's mercy that I've come to see… Do you all know what the one thing is in Scripture that God delights in? He delights to display His mercy. And I think that's such a fantastic thing to realize that that's paramount. And on the day of resurrection, we're going to see that so clearly. And it's, it's not… He doesn't delight in men who are righteous, <laughs> or He doesn't delight in, in discipline or something like this. He delights in showing His mercy, and I think that's just a fantastic thing. And um, there were a couple other things that we wanted to, to talk about, but our time's out. And um, I just want to thank everybody for, for being here and for giving me the opportunity to, to get to share this. Um, did you You're want me to show t- us the pictures, right? Yeah, yeah. You... Hey, Glenn, could you put those pictures up? That's the stone that Susan and I put at the cemetery. And by the way, the word cemetery, the best we understand, and from the etymology I've been able to discover, is that it means a place of waiting for the resurrection. But we wanted uh, what God had shown us to be a testimony to others, particularly when they're at the cemetery too. And so we put this up, and um, I'd like to read to you what we have over there on the left. If you want to go over to that slide or a picture, there we go. It says, um, the same God who ordained with precision the tornado that destroyed our home on May the 9th, 2006, and took our precious son temporarily from us. He is the same God who gave you the eyes to read this stone. He is sovereign and mightily in control of the slightest and greatest events in your life. When you study his word and come to know the beauty of his sovereignty, you will then be able to relax and glorify God in your trust. You wanted to end with a with a clip, oh, so, yeah. yeah, we yeah. show that clip and then yeah. we have communion? This this clip is from Les Miserab, and the thing that I I think that's beautiful about this is that if y'all know the story of, of Les Miserab, when John Valjean, who has gotten out of prison, he's financially strapped and he's he's he has nothing, and he. Steals from a priest who has graciously helped him. And the beauty of what this picture shows is that it's God's mercy that comes first. And God's mercy is what changes our hearts. He doesn't, I don't think God cares at all about behavior modification, which is what the law brings us. He changes our hearts with His love and His mercy and His grace, and by changing our hearts and showing us His mercy, the behavior modification comes as an act of love and thankfulness. And so, as you see this, this is a reminder of, of the power of, uh, of mercy.
2: You're really letting me go? Didn't you understand the bishop? Madam, you know, offer these men some wine. They must be thirsty. Thank you. And don't forget. Don't ever forget.
0: Jean Valjean stole the silver from the priest, and then the priest reveals that he has forgiven Jean Valjean the silver, which creates a new heart, a new will in Jean Valjean, and it's all written into the story by Victor Hugo. And I think what the Bible is saying is that in the beginning, each of us took the life of God from a tree. And so, Colson's life is somehow the life of God in dust. And any time you refer to your life as your life, you've taken the life that is somehow God's life. And then thousands of years later, the life became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. And we beheld His glory, glorious of the only Son from the Father, the Father's Son. And we watched Him, and we were jealous of Him, and then we took His life. But the night before we took his life, he took bread and he broke it and said, this is my body given to you. Do you know that it's given to you? Because scripture says he did this from the foundation of the world. It's just that you're discovering it now. And he took the cup, saying, this is the cup. Uh, This cup is uh, the covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you, and do it in remembrance of me. This cup of the covenant, the eternal covenant. And so God is writing our story, that we take his life, and he reveals that he has always given his life and uh, we begin to trust, and that trust is the doorway to the kingdom of heaven for God longs to give everything back to you for all eternity along with a new heart. So as you come to the table this morning, would you surrender (laughs) uh, that thing that you feel God stole from you? Because you'll have one, right? I mean, maybe you didn't lose a son, but maybe you lost a job. Maybe you lost an opportunity. Maybe you lost a boyfriend. You lost a girlfriend. You've lost something. And as you come to this table, would you surrender it to the author of the story and trust that he's in your story, and it's good? Dark cup is wine. Light cup is juice. They're both the love of God and the meaning of your story. Let's worship. And so, Lord God, thank you for shining your light on our souls and waking them up so that we could see how great you truly are. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, whenever we talk about sorrow or loss or suffering in church, it kind of worries me because people will look at me, and and if you're grieving, if you're processing something, that's fine, but sometimes people will look at me and and it feels like they want to say this to me, do you mean to tell me that in this world I will have tribulation? I thought you were going to tell me something, like give me a formula so I could avoid tribulation, so that I could be raptured out of the world before tribulation. But Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation. And, it, and, and most of you are over the age of 16, so you ought to know that by now. This is the good news. He said, in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And who is he? He's the plot to your story. So when Mike uh, said, asked that question, was God taking a break? The answer is no. He was in Robert being sucked out of the window and uh, revealing to Robert that he is salvation. Right? Right? And uh, he, he was in Colson, taking Colson home to the Father and to the place that we all long to go. And he was in Mike, suffering, weeping, feeling all of his sorrow, dying with Mike and rising with Mike and giving Mike his own heart. The heart of the Father, the heart of the Son, the heart that trusts in the mercy of God and has compassion for all. Preparing, Mike, for an eternal weight of glory beyond all compare. So in the name of Jesus, I'm just telling you, God is writing your story. and Once you believe it, well then you can start to enjoy it, even here, even now. In other words, believe the gospel, Amen.